All right, we are going to continue our sermon sessions in the Gospel of John, and we are found in chapter 11. And the portion of Scripture within chapter 11, because it's a pretty lengthy chapter, we're going to look from verses 1 through verse 27. And we will continue in the like fashion we have been, which is to look within the context and truly get to know who this man named Jesus is. And thus far, we have recognized in his ministry that he, Jesus, man in flesh, just like you and I, was God on earth to fulfill the ministry and the redemption of mankind. And this took place uh, 2,000 years ago. Some change involved there, of course. But it's truly fascinating and interesting when we allow ourselves to have a humble heart to recognize that God walked among mankind. And because of the many years that have passed, millennia, it's very tempting for us to say, well, that can't be the case. God walking on earth among man, sure. Yeah, right. And Peter even spoke of those things. An inspired apostle spoke of those things. There is a day in which they will mock that very truth. Why? Because when enough time has passed, we tend to think it didn't exist. It never happened. But that's not the case. We have a wealth of sources to reveal the witnessed accounts. If you seek history, you can source history. You prefer science? I do too. Science as a tool can be utilized. All these many sources can be utilized to prove to the very fact that there was a man named Jesus who walked among us. In the first century, Jerusalem, and some saw him to be the Messiah, the prophesied coming king, the Christ of the prophets so spoke centuries prior. And we see in the Gospel of John this information revealed And we see how it is so well-written, inspired, for John was a man governed by the outpoured power of the Holy Spirit. He was governed by God in his pen, writing the account that was witnessed. We understand in an honorable court of law, one provides a witness. Why? I was there at the scene. I saw. And so we see through this account, this wonderful gospel, the mission in which Christ was to fulfill. And because of that, sadly, we have a window in the unfortunate ways of mankind who grew hostile towards the Messiah. For the Christ came among his people as a Jew, proclaiming their need for repentance. He came among his own people who were believers, who had religious leaders, to tell them they needed to change the way they think. We know how hard that is. Once we've been made to think a certain way all our lives, born into a household with many ways in which we must think, and here's this man come to tell us we must change the way we think? I think if we're honest and transparent with each other, we can see how that would anger us. But to the humble, those who would look inwardly and say, why is he telling us to change? 
Are we not God's people? Are we not believers? Have we not kept the law? Why does he ask us to change? Believers need not change. The heathen does. The pagans. The foreigners. The Greeks. The Gentiles. They need to change. They are the dogs. They are the idolaters. We are God's people. We come from Abraham's lineage. We know the law. And he is here telling us we must change. And we've seen those very witnessed accounts throughout the pages of the gospel. And they grow more and more hostile towards the Christ. They want to murder him, don't they? You see, they had accustomed themselves to the Sanhedrin, which was the religious rule and government, the socio-political policies of their day. The Sanhedrin was a body of governing powers, religious leaders, which held chief priests, Sadducees, Pharisees, elders. And they could never get along. And for those of us who may be paying attention to our political ways here in this country, they don't seem to get along on much of anything, do they? It was the same within the Jewish government of the Sanhedrin. They couldn't get along. They were always bickering about this, that, and the other. One was saying, the law should be this way. And the other one would say, no, my interpretation of the law should be this way. And then all of a sudden, all of this discord within this body of governing power in the Sanhedrin, they chose to be united and have one singular problem together. Jesus. We need to get rid of him. Why? Because Jesus came to liberate them, the people, from the clutches of sin. And these religious leaders had become tyrants, oppressors, dictators. They had become key holders, gatekeepers. You can't come to God without me. And Christ was there to tell them, you need no man. You need not follow the Pharisees. You only need to follow Christ. And that meant taking away the control of the religious leaders. Oh, religious leaders don't like to lose their control over the people they've oppressed. Why? Because them in which they've oppressed, they receive praise from chief seats. Oh, and your money. Your money, too. These religious leaders of the day, they were greedy, Jesus says. They were hypocrites. They were self-righteous. And Jesus told them, you belong to your father, the devil, who is a murderer and a liar from the beginning. Imagine that. Imagine that, this man who comes from Nazareth of all places. Who is he to tell our religious leaders that they are the heir of the devil? And so they want to murder him. But yet Jesus continues with the mission. He has compassion for the people. He heals them. He heals them. This man who walks among them can raise the dead. He can control the weather. He can cure the sick, make whole the lame. He can cast out demons. He lives in the age of the miraculous, which was permissible from God for that very purpose to confirm him as deity among man. 
religious leaders, the Jews of the day, hated him for it. They hated him for it and they wanted to murder him. We saw the Christ when he fed the 5,000 as the bread of life. We saw the Messiah towards a man who was born blind, given sight. Christ became the light of the world. And in today's account, my dear friends, if you allow your thoughts to be captivated within the text and the context, we are going to see the Christ as the resurrection and the life. Verse 1, chapter 11 of the Gospel of John. Please, I am but a man and I can be wrong. But the words you are reading are the words of the Holy Spirit. Trust the book you read. Verse 1 of chapter 11, we begin this journey. It says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. It was, verse 2, the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So, in verse 3, the sisters sent word to him, that is Jesus, and they sent the word to Jesus saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Jesus loved Lazarus. But when Jesus heard this in verse 4, Jesus said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man, a Son of God, may be glorified by it. Fascinating. We take a breath, we think. Here is the Messiah, the Christ. The man to be crowned king, God on earth, the Savior. And he has love for a family, for a brother, for sisters. And there is news that has come to his attention of this man he loves, Lazarus, being sick. Now at this time, Lazarus had passed. And the Christ will reveal this information once we move forward. And it is interesting how the Christ is always in control of all things taking place. That with the free will of man. Now that'll blow your mind. We all have free will. We can choose at this moment to sit and listen. Or we can get up and leave. It's a decision we make. We all have free will to do good or to do evil, to speak or to remain silent. And yet with the blessing of free will and responsibility, independent accountability through the intellectual capability, yet still with this blessing, God's will is always achieved. It's fascinating. And here 
in regards to the man he loves, Lazarus, who has passed, and the information would have taken a few days to make it to the attention of the Christ, and the Christ receives the information, and what he says is, this sickness is not to end in death. Well, wait a minute. Lazarus is dead. For the, oh, for the glory, for the, for, for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. You see, when the Christ gave sight to the man who was born blind, it was to give glory to God. In this act of resurrection and life which will take place, it is to have God glorified. He is the most high power. And the Christ will take opportunity with this death of a loved one. And it's interesting how if you look at chapter 9, verse 3, Jesus answered in regards to the healing of the blind man. Chapter 9, verse 3, Jesus said, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And here now in chapter 11, the death of Lazarus is going to be utilized as an opportunity for the Messiah to have God glorified. Now, in verse 5, chapter 11, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. You can see the Christ his love for this family, these people, they are mentioned independently by name, independently and collectively as a family in which Christ had great compassion and love for. So when he, in verse 6, heard that Lazarus was sick, Jesus stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Well, wait a minute. Now let's take a Let's take a breath again. Jesus has just received the word that a family he loves is in distress. They are desperate. And that a man he loves, a brother, has passed. And his reaction is to stay where he's at for two days. Well, wait a minute. If... Any of us, if we would have word that a family member or a loved one was in this distress, we'd immediately do what we have to do. Get on a plane, get on a train, <laughs> automobile, walk, run, bicycle, whatever we need to do. We need to go see our loved one. He, he's dying. He's sick. Why is the Christ waiting two days? And there is days of journey to the location in which Lazarus was found, the very location in which the Jews wanted to murder Jesus, that he had evaded them. And now the request is coming in to go back into the lion's den where the Jews seek to murder him. They were wise to give the word to Christ of his love for the man, Lazarus. And Jesus heard this information about Lazarus, and he stays two days longer in the place where he was. Why would he do that? Well, my dear friends, if we're captivated by the narrative and the witness to count, 
and we've learned the nature of the Messiah, we know something. He has foresight, doesn't he? And he knows it's irrefutable. It cannot be refuted. That if a man has been dead for four days and he has been raised, it wasn't a fraud. It wasn't an illusion. It wasn't a trick. It was a true and authentic, supernatural, miraculous occurrence. You see, because when the spirit leaves the body, the body is dead. Now, it is not to be confused with the heart stopping. Because the heart is but a tool within the body to accommodate the rest of the functions biologically. But we all know of accounts of men and women, children, whose heart has stopped beating on the operation table or at the hospital, in the ER room. And then through modern science and medicine, that heart was made to start thumping again. My dear friends, life did not leave the body. The spirit did not leave that body. Once the spirit leaves the body, that is when death occurs. And no man or woman can lose the spirit for four days and come back without the power of God. This can't be done. That's why at times we hear stories and accounts of an individual said, I, my heart stopped for three minutes or five minutes and they did this and they did that and the heart stopped. I came back from the dead. No, 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 no. No, no, no. You did not come back from the dead. You were not dead. Your spirit did not leave your body. There was a malfunction and modern science helped to, uh, how should we say, um, pierce it back into functionality but you had not lost the spirit, there is an impossibility to lose your spirit and then have it back. What's interesting, of course, as we will see forward in this account, which is why Christ waited. He waited. He wanted to make sure that the man, there was no confusion about this. It was not, well, his heart stopped for a while and then we brought him back to life. So, you know, he's okay. No, he was dead. For four days, his spirit had left. Spirit left. Went back to the powers on high. And there was no way to bring it back unless you're Jesus. Literally, physically, in the flesh, walking among us. That's why when he heard that Lazarus, a man whom he loves, was sick, Jesus chose to stay two days longer in the place where he was. It wasn't an accident. It was well organized to take opportunity in what he had just previously said in verse 4, so that the Son of Man may be glorified by it. So, in verse 7, after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. 
<laughs> Let's go into the lion's den. Let us go back to the location in which the Jews sought to murder me. And of course, naturally, in verse 8, the disciples of the Christ said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, and coincidentally, this here gospel would be the last location in which he is called Rabbi. Rabbi, the Jews, they say, were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Like these people wanted to murder you, Master. Why are you seeking to go there again? And if you are paying attention, look at chapter 10, verse 30 and 31. Why would they seek to murder him? Look at verse 30 of chapter 10. I and the Father are one. He is defending his deity and his equality with the Father in heaven. That triggered them into a rage. And so in verse 31, what does it say of chapter 10? The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Are we all familiar with the idea and the execution of one being stoned to death? That's when they put you in a circle. If we, it's very barbaric. It's very violent. It would be what we would commonly say, very primitive and barbaric. It would be like taking some, one, some one of us, putting that person in the middle there, and all of us have stones, rocks, and we throw it at him, his head, his body, until he dies. What a painful way to die. What a barbaric way to treat a human being. These are his people. This is his culture. <laughs> they should have loved him and embraced him and welcomed him and followed him. But they want to put him in a circle among them and stone them to death. It's execution. It's an illegal capital punishment. It's not just. It's not right. And here in chapter 11, in verse 8, can we not understand why his disciples would say no 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 let's not go there what do you want to go there for man they're going to hurt you they're going to kill you what do you want to do that for and what does jesus answer in verse 9 let us pay attention to the text it says are there not 12 hours in the day if anyone walks in the day he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. What on earth kind of an answer is that? <laughs> we don't want you to go get murdered. What are you talking about? There's... No, listen, they would have understood this very well. For you and I, in our current culture, we're like, what is he speaking of? No, listen, this is what he's speaking of, and this is why they understood what he's saying. Of a greater depth, anyways. They would not understand at this juncture, but they are certainly going to understand as the text will move forward, and he is going to plainly explain it. But what is he saying? He's saying to them, you see, in the first century, with the Jews and the Romans, they had structured their day with a 12-hour sunlight time. Okay? So during that 12-hour sunlight, when the sun shone upon the world, you could see where you walked. So you wouldn't stumble because the landscape there could have been treacherous. There were many things that could have caused problems. So the Jews and the Romans created a 12-hour daylight time. 
And that's when you did your commerce. That's when you did your business. That's when you went to and fro. That's when you activated social activity. Are there not 12 hours in the day? Now, why is he saying that? It's to bring them to a spiritual knowledge. What Jesus is truly saying is this. My time has not yet come. It's still day. I'm still alive. And I still have things to accomplish and fulfill. And wouldn't you know, this moment in which a man will be raised from the dead who has been dead in the grave for four days, whose spirit has left the body, wouldn't you know this would be the very pivotal peak moment before the Christ will go on to allow himself to be murdered. From feeding the 5,000 to giving sight to a man who was born blind to now a true and powerful display of his confirmation. Raising a man who had been dead for four days. And he's going to be able to do that because he is still active in his ministry. It has not yet been fulfilled. He's not yet done. There's still things to do. And he is saying that to his disciples to reassure them it'll be okay. Because they're worried. These people are going to murder you, master. Don't worry. They can't hurt me unless I allow them to do so. He's always in control. He's always in control. And so he says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. And who is the Christ? He is the light of this world. And so when we follow the Christ, we live in the daylight time and we see what is before us so we don't stumble, we don't fall. Doesn't that make sense? And then he says, but if anyone walks in the night, verse 10, he stumbles because the light is not in him. You have a decision to make. Will you live in the light or will you live in darkness? In darkness you stumble, you fall. In light you see, you persevere, you heal, you grow. Now this, of course, he said, and after that he had said to them in verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. Again, he's utilizing the spiritual channel of understanding regarding day and night. Lazarus is currently in darkness. But I am the light of the world and I will bring him back into daylight time. Now the disciples then said to him in verse 12, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. <laughs> it must have been challenging for the Christ to deal with us feeble humans, right? Asking such things. But he loves us. And he understands that the capacity of our intellectual abilities would have been confused, perhaps, at what he was saying. Like, why? What is this? I mean, if he's sleeping, if Lazarus is sleeping, what's the... He'll wake up, he'll be fine. Christ was not sleeping of a sl <laughs> not speaking of a slumber, of a sleep of sorts. He was not speaking as his Lazarus just taking a nap, he'll be fine, he'll wake up. <laughs> no, Lazarus was had his spirit was gone. Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. You know, we say that even today in our culture, don't we? When we see a a, a graveyard of sorts, people are resting. 
They're sleeping peacefully. We'll say things like that. To at times, of course, just uh, comfort us, I suppose, in certain ways. No. Lazarus is, is dead, of course. So Jesus says to them plainly in verse 14, Lazarus is dead. <laughs> if you didn't understand it before, here it is. Lazarus is dead. And you know what's interesting with this? Let me show you something. Keep your finger with this portion of Scripture. Keep your, keep your hand or your finger in chapter 11, verse uh, 14. And, and, and at the same time that you hold your hand there, go, go into the Old Testament with me if you can. And let's try to find Ecclesiastes. Let's try to find Ecclesiastes if we can here. I cheated, of course. I had a little piece of paper there. <laughs> but I suppose my task is to be ready, right? So, once we make it to Ecclesiastes, if you will, it's kind of, I think, well, it's before Song of Solomon, and it's after the Psalms, right? Is that it? Proverbs? It's after Proverbs. So, like, I think if you find Proverbs, and you go after Proverbs, you'll find Ecclesiastes. And if you're in Song of Solomon, it's before. You'll find Ecclesiastes before there. No rush. Let's get there together. It's an important one. It's a gem in the treasure box. It'll make sense to what we're reading from the Christ. Ecclesiastes is an interesting study. That'll be something we get into as well, I'm sure. Lord willing, into uh, the coming days, the future days. Excellent. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Excellent. Good job, guys. If I hadn't a piece of paper there, I assure you, I'd still be looking for it. Okay, so in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7. If I'm not mistaken, or maybe I am. Let me check something here. Oh. Yeah. Chapter 12, verse 7. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was. And what does it say? And the spirit will return to God who gave it. Now, why is that important? Because it tells us what happens when you lose your spirit. You die. Not when your heart stops beating. Now, if your heart stops beating long enough, you will lose your spirit. Let's not test that grounds, right? But it is true in today's age that some who are caught in perhaps a car accident or perhaps have some kind of a disease or something happens in which their heart stops to beat but if they are taken care of with modern science quickly enough they need not lose their spirit because the heart can be reactivated to beat and then the body can continue its function what happened with lazarus was not that it was a complete loss of the spirit he was dead for four days a recorded account of a man who had been dead for four days 
and we see how that happens in Ecclesiastes. That's why I wanted to bring you there so that there is no confusion in your thoughts on what happens when we die. When we die, we lose our spirit, and that's how it takes place. Back into chapter 11, and I appreciate your patience. I know we're running a bit here, but it's important. So please, allow your, your thoughts to remain captivated within the text. In, 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 in verse 14, Jesus said to, to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. His spirit has left his body. He's, he's, he's done. And he says in verse 15, And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And that's something. I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. Because what would have happened if he would have been there? Lazarus would not have died. And if Lazarus would not have died, then Christ could not have utilized this opportunity to show who he truly is, his power. And so he is joyful to the fact that he can utilize this opportunity to provide a supernatural occurrence. And it's not for the mere supernatural occurrence. It's to confirm who he is. Can anyone here raise the dead? Because I got loved ones that I'd love to see again. I'm going to say something. Do not be offended. Anyone who tries to tell you that they know someone or they can raise the dead is lying to you. They're liars. Now, they may be lying because they know they're liars or they might be lying because they've been lied to and they're just sincerely ignorant about what's going This is a supernatural occurrence that was recorded in the first century. It had witnesses. It was recorded. It was penned down. A man was dead for four days and was raised again. That don't happen today. But please, let us remain within the text here and its context moving forward. Jesus says, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe... But let us go to him. Belief. Why did he do what he needed to do? So that they would believe in him. And he says, let us go to him. What does that tell us? It takes action. It takes action. There must be movement. And of course, in verse 16, therefore, Thomas. Interesting. Thomas is an Aramaic name. And it means twin. And then it says, who is called Didymus. What's Didymus? Didymus is the Greek equivalent to the Aramaic name twin. Well, who is he a twin to? Thomas, who wanted evidence from Christ. He's commonly known as Doubting Thomas, but he wasn't doubting. He wasn't doubting. Interesting. A bit of, tri uh, a bit of academic pursuit for you, for your thoughts. And it says, said to his fellow disciples in verse 16. So here is Thomas called Didymus, and he says to his fellow disciples, in regards to what's, been, what's going on here with Jesus, he says, let us also go so that we may die with him. With who? With Jesus. Where? Over there, where the Jews want to stone him. An act of courage, is that not? Valiant? Courageous. If you're going somewhere where there's danger, I want to go with you. And if you have to die there, I'll die there with you. That's courageous. That's what a true friend would say. That's the kind of family we're building here, aren't we? Where I lay down my life for you if calls for it. And I don't really want to die, but I want to make sure you're okay. We understand that as parents. I would gladly give up my life for my sons and daughter and my wife. I've counted that cost. 
I already have. I don't want that to happen. I pray it doesn't happen. But if it does, I'm gonna die. But I assure you, I'll take as many bad guys with me as I can. They need to meet Jesus too. They'll just be on a different spectrum of the fence. Well, here's Thomas saying, if you have to go there, Master, and die, then I'll go there and we'll die with you. Now, again, I am positive that Thomas at that moment, when he said that, he meant that. But for those, of course, who take the time to study the account of the Christ to its final destination, which was Christ to die on the cross, everyone forsook him. His friends, his family, his culture, his people, they all abandoned him. And Christ died alone, except for his father who never left him. Let us also go so that we may die with him. What a powerful display of a friend. So, when Jesus came, in verse 17, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. See that? Now you see it. Verse 17, they make it finally to where Lazarus is found, and they find Lazarus, and he's been dead there four days. Man, it must have started to smell. <laughs> now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, verse 18, about two miles off. And many of the Jews, verse 19 had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Well, naturally, they're going to have themselves friends and family and people around them to say, you know, man, I'm so sorry. You know, I'm so sorry this happened. You know, we, we understand that. Many, many of us have been to funerals. It's a very sorrowful thing. Martha, therefore, in verse 20, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house, or at the house. And in verse 21, Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But what did verse 15 say? What did Jesus say in verse 15? I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe. Why is it a good thing that Jesus was not there to make sure he didn't die? So that we could believe there's purpose in life. And it's through the Christ. And so here, of course, we see the same understanding from Martha. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, you see her faith in verse 22. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. She understands that. She's seen him. She's witnessed to him on earth doing these miraculous things. So Jesus says to her in verse 23, Your brother will rise again. His spirit left him, but a spirit will return to him. We at times humorously of this account would speak to each other and say, Man, I, didn't, I wouldn't want to be Lazarus. Here's Lazarus. His spirit leaves his body. He feels the sting of death. I don't know about you. I don't like the sting of death. That scares me a bit. Because we don't... What are we going to do? Man, that don't... It don't... The thought of the sting of death, the moment where it hurts and then it finishes. I, I, so morbid. It's scary looking, kind of. Your brother will rise again. The spirit will return to his body. And it's through his power. Even now... 
I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And so Martha says to Jesus in verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. I know upon the day of judgment that my brother will rise again. You see, she's, she's almost there, but she's not quite seeing it. He's speaking of an immediate time in which he is literally next to him. God on earth, capable of raising her brother there and now. But she's thinking, of course, of the day of judgment, the day of resurrection for all. And of course, Jesus says to her in verse 25, you don't need to wait for that. Why? Because I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And in verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die And Jesus asks a very important question to us this morning, does he not? What does he ask us? Do you believe this? So she, in verse 27, says to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ. That means the Messiah, the prophesied coming Savior of the world, the Son of God, the unique Son of God, whoever believes, correct? John 3.16, so commonly quoted within Christendom. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him need not perish, but will go on to eternal life. Everyone, it doesn't matter who you are, which religious background you come from, It doesn't matter which skin color you have. It doesn't matter which language you speak, which geographical location, which culture. Anyone and everyone who chooses to change their mind and follow the Christ, believe in him and who he is, need not die. And then we all look at each other and say, what do you mean? We're all going to die. Of course we are. It's a fallen world. We live the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin. We live the consequences of that life. We have to depart. This, this body must go back to the dirt, but what will go to the heavens? The Spirit. And friends, why is he speaking this language? Because there is a torment and there is a paradise. There is a heaven and there is a hell. And though the world don't want to talk about that, it's the truth. It's the truth and it will set you free, John eight thirty two. And it'll set you free through his word, John 8, 31. And so he is giving this woman, this family, hope. He is giving them goals and purpose in life. He is telling them, I am the resurrection and the life. And through me, you need not die. And he's going to display that power in the coming verses, which we will not have time this morning. We will, Lord willing, keep that for next Sunday. But he will raise the dead and prove and confirm his deity and that he is the sole source power in which we need not die. Now, we must go back to the dirt, these bodies, but the spirit need not go to torment. It need not go to hell. We don't need to die in our sins and be eternally damned, which is just. And someone says, well, that's not just. Of course it is, and you know it is. If a murderer is captivated in the, in the community, would we not seek justice for our loved ones who had been murdered? Would we not seek that the judge send this person to either capital punishment or life imprisonment? Of course we would. And it is just as just that all of us 
have that consequence of eternal torment. But Christ said you don't need to die. You don't need to die. This goes back to the new birth, which Christ proclaimed in John 3.3 and John 3.5. Born again, out of water and the Spirit. What are we reading here and now, these words? They are the words of the Holy Spirit. If we read these words, which are Spirit, and we obey them, we will be born out of water and the Spirit. This plan of salvation and the church in which Christ established, it was birthed from the mind of God from the very beginning. Prior to the formation of Adam and Eve, God had already prepared this plan. It was prophesied by the prophets of old. Isaiah, Joel, Micah, Daniel. It was promised by the Christ himself while he walked this earth. He said, I will build my kingdom. My church will be built and it will be built while you live in the first century. And it would come as the prophets proclaimed with the outpouring power of the Holy Spirit upon the twelve chosen vessels, the apostles, who stood up among the people in Jerusalem during the reign of the Roman Empire on the day of Pentecost, recorded in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. And the people who heard the message were pierced. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, through the apostles, told them they had murdered the Son of Man. You killed the Christ. You brought him to the cross. They wept. They were pierced. They saw the blood on their hands. We murdered the Son of God. How would you think if you've murdered a man and you have his blood on his hands? A man who would be innocent. We find compassion when we see someone hurt in the community and we rush to their aid. Are you okay? Can we help? Those who recognized the truth of the Holy Spirit being spoken, they qualified. And what was the qualifying factors? They had to change the way they think. That would change the direction in their life. They believed in the Messiah. The evidence was given and proven. And they wanted to be legal citizens of His kingdom, His church. How? The Holy Spirit told them how. Change the way you think. We do! How do we become right with God again? We've sinned. Let each and every one of you, calling on His name, for there is the authority and the power, be immersed, plunged, dipped, submerged, buried, clothed, fully embraced, baptized in water, born again, out of water, and the Spirit. God adds you to His church. I didn't make that up. Don't believe me. Believe what you can read from the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1 and 2. And all who heard that message, 3,000 people of that day, that's what they did. They were immersed into Christ. Now, I don't know about you. We can go all kinds of places to get all kinds of different answers, can't we? I went looking for all those answers all over the place. But the only one that I keep trusting is this book. And I figure, in my simple mind, that if I just do what they did, the way they did it, 
then I can be saved too. And I can sleep well at night, knowing that Jesus loves me and that he's given me a family to love and be friends with. We don't need to go through this life alone. We don't. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? My dear friends, if you do believe this, the opportunity to be saved is here and now. It is today. It can be done. It's possible. There's water everywhere. There is. Someone says, well, the water doesn't save. Of course it doesn't. But Jesus does when you're in the water. That will conclude our sermon session for this day. If there is anything you need to say or do, you can wait afterwards. We're all here as family and, and open to speak. But at this time, we will go to our song. <laughs>